Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. This week in this country, we're allowed to gather in groups of six in a garden. But we're keeping things sadly remote on the podcast. There'll be five of us communicating all from our living rooms, including, of course, Thea Lenaduzzi. Thea, hello. Hello. Um, listeners Corner, I've had some cracking emails over the week. <laughs> Uh, and tweets. Uh, Mara G has tweeted in with pictures of her foster cats, Ulysses and Penelope. And they reminded her that, that a poem called When You Set Out for Ithaca is one of her favourite poems by Cavafy. Are you familiar with it, Thea? Cavafy, yeah. Cavafy. I know I was going to get that wrong. Cavafy. <laughs> just wait. There's a pronunciation minefield I'm about to be walking into. I know, and it's, it's just for you. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Cavafy has the anti-lockdown message. Hope your road is a long one full of adventure, full of discovery which is kind of rather sad at the moment, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Elliot from Hungerford emails to say, he and his girlfriend heard a dog owner on a walk call for three dogs, Edgar, Alan and Poe. Good, solid literary names. They also had a fourth dog. Less interestingly, for the purposes of this email, he says, and that was called Dora. After Dora Ma, maybe, though? Uh, maybe, or maybe just... Maybe just, just Dora. Dora the Explorer? Yeah, my, my, uh, my little toddler Phoebe's middle name is Dora. After her <laughs> grandmother, uh, not a literary figure, alas, but yeah, her grandmother's called Dora. Um, it's a nice name. Speaking of Dora, how about Nora? Alison Leave emails to say, when we took our Welsh terrier Nora to the vet for her first vaccinations, the receptionist insisted she needed a surname in the record system. <laughs> Neither of us wanted Nora to have the other surname. <laughs> so she became Nora Barnacle after James Joyce's wife's. Isn't that brilliant? That's excellent. And of course, this means I'm now known as Mrs. Barnacle at the vet. <laughs> Alison Lee, we salute you. That's absolutely brilliant. Okay. Uh, Fergus Leatham has sent this email. I was delighted to hear and see on Twitter that you've got yourself a little ginger kitten. I have called Boudica or Boo. It's also pretty rare to get a female ginger cat. So well done on that. I hope you and yours will be able to treasure the little ginger ninja like we have, our very own literary pet, Winston, named in honour of Winston Churchill, who was ginger before he went bald. I'd hope he squeaks into the category of literary pets, given he was more prolific as a writer than Darwin and Shakespeare combined. 
I think we can allow Winston in, don't you think? To the literary I pet think, pamphlet. I think we probably can. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature, Winston Churchill, of course. He did. I forgot is, that. Yeah, and it, it, the whole Nobel Prize is, of course, as we know, baffling, but that is a baffling part of a baffling decision, it seems to me. Yeah. Well, E.M. Yeah, e. E. Forster, who we're going to be talking about in a bit, was nominated something like 20 times, wasn't he? Was he? And yeah. never got it. And Nabokov, <laughs> Nabokov never got it, despite being uh, nominated several times either. It's crazy. Anyway, Winston, the non-Nobel laureate cat, is a rather old fellow now, and here he is enjoying the warm weather in the garden. Sent me a picture. Lovely. Now, Thea, as pronunciation guru... I'm not taking this for you. You've got to do this. Okay, Okay, good. (laughs) Uh, The email from Hank Eswees, which I've already probably got wrong. I listen to the TLS podcast every week when cleaning the bathroom. (laughs) Charming. So much more enjoyable. (laughs) Anyway, well done, Hank. Anyway, a few years ago, we got three hens, which are children named after characters in famous Dutch children's books. Mevrouw Helderdeer, Argja en Janneke. They're taken from books by Annie M.G. Schmidt, who wrote several classic children's novels in the 60s and 70s, such as Pluck van der Petterflet and Yip Ein Janneke. In her books and many songs, the kids are independent and capable, whereas the adults are often the wacky ones. I wanted to bring this to your attention as part of the ongoing literary pets theme and hope you will mention this on the podcast, if only to give me the pleasure of hearing you pronounce the names. <laughs> Damn you, well, 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 cleaning the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well. Yep. Uh, a couple more. David Moore's email with an actual literary dog. I'm not sure this counts. The title character and narrator of Leon Rook's 1981 novel, Shakespeare's Dog. Are you familiar with that, Thea? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll allow this, won't we? Uh, we will allow. It's uh, yeah, are you familiar with the book? He said there's a picture of the cover which has a dog in an Elizabethan ruff. <laughs> what more could you want? Which I quite liked. Uh, and literary children. Remember the challenges now. We've moved from pets. Keep your pets coming in. But we also want literary children. Uh, and Nicholas Moran said, now that I learned teenagers are considered pets for the purposes of the section, I propose my 15-year-old's <laughs> daughter, 15-years-old daughter, Kedda, named after a minor character from Mervyn Peake's Gormangas trilogy. Kedda, which I hope I'm pronouncing right, comes to live in the castle for a time, helping to raise Titus in the first volume. So that, there is you a, go. that is a good literary pet. So, literary child. <laughs> The confusion continues. It does. So children and pets, let us know uh, details of them and anything else, books you're reading, what you're watching. Tweet us at the TLS, at stigable, at thea underscore lenarduzzi, or email me at stig.able at the-tls.co.uk. Get subscribing to the TLS this week. Use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. It's the best price anywhere on the internet. Six issues for £5 or $5. Coming up on this week's show, it's 50 years since the death of E.M. Forster. And we've got two lovely pieces in the paper this week. Robert Douglas Fairhurst has rewatched all the Merchant Ivory adaptations and Elizabeth Lowry has reread A Passage to India. Michael Keynes, the doctor, our literary guru, will be here to talk us through both of those pieces and E.M. Forster more generally. We continue our dispatches from lockdown around the world with the poet Alicia Stallings, who is coming to us from Athens. And Colin Grant is here to discuss a history of Jamaica, an island with a devastatingly cruel history and an extremely strong cultural reach. Outsized global importance of Jamaica, an island nation with under three million citizens, is a subject of a recent book by Orlando Patterson called The Confounding Island. 
Slavery, Patterson contends, explains much of modern Jamaica's excellence, as well as its dysfunction. And while this isn't an original observation, the details and depths of Patterson's research make the book worthy of further discussion. For that, we're joined by Colin Grant, whose review in this week's TLS guides us through several hundred years of history and culture, dysfunction and excellence, from the cry of Anthony Trollope visiting in 1859, that the utter sinking of Jamaica under the sea might not be regarded as a misfortune for the British, to the rousing lyrics of the whalers who sang, in 1973, slave driver, the table is turned, catch a fire so you can get burned. Colin Grant joins us on the line now to tell us more. Hello, Colin. Hello there. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful and very far-ranging book and and your piece as well and the image of of a ruined eden is is a comes across as a very long established and persistent one when it comes to jamaica i mean it was regarded as the pearl of the antilles if anybody has been there will um, confirm with me that it's the most beautiful island one of the most beautiful islands on the planet it's very lush very fecund very fertile um, but it's been ridden and riven with so much violence over the years that that's slightly tainted, well, more than tainted, um, this former Eden. It's a very brutal country in many regards, unfortunately. I suppose the question as well of, of a, a ruined Eden, uh, the question follows, you know, ruined by whom, for whom? Well, it is a plunder colony. It, it is an island which the British plundered, and they did so by bringing enslaved Africans to Jamaica, with one purpose, to make money off their backs through plantation culture. And make money they did. I mean, it created enormous wealth for a a small number of of British slavers and and drivers and and itinerant uh, workers, but also absentee landlords. So for many, many years, um, it was the, the sugar in the bottom of the cup when it came to when many people bring in Britain drinking tea, but also it, uh, it had enormous uh, results in terms of wealth for the people who had these enslaved people on these massive plantations in Jamaica. How does Patterson set out this central contention of Jamaica as confounding, you know, surprising, confusing? It's a very small place, really, Jamaica. It's only 120-odd miles by 60 or 70 miles. Uh, presently, it has less than 3 million people. But uh, culturally, it really punches above its weight. Um, It's a small place, and yet we have so much of uh, our culture in this country has been informed by the excellence of reggae, which is primarily a Jamaican cultural export. In terms of language, I mean, if you walk around London, um, as I do, you will hear Jamaican speak. You'll hear patois, sometimes spoken on the lips of new coming Polish migrants. Uh, Jamaica is always and has been for many, many years thought of as a place of cool, Um, but also it has great uh, sporting uh, achievements, which also bring Jamaica to a great worldwide prominence. One only has to think of Usain Bolt and some of those amazing cricketers who excel, especially in the 70s and 80s, people like Michael Holding. So Jamaica has more than any other island in the Caribbean forged a huge reputation culturally Uh, Unfortunately, it's also forced a huge reputation in terms of the violence that uh, is present and has been present in the country for many, many years. And is there a reason given, Colin, for that that cultural 
reach first of all because the violence you can you can probably draw a straight line between a sort of violent and bloody past and a, and a violent and bloody present there's there's probably arguments to be made around that but you can see a, a link of sorts what's the reason given for why jamaica has excelled so much culturally why it's had such reach i think Steve, because it is a place where individualism is celebrated if you can imagine in a place like jamaica where most people have very little have very little money, have very little opportunities, and their prospects aren't great. The one thing that you can have, which can't be controlled, is style. So there's a great premium placed on style uh, in Jamaica, and a great premium placed on your ability to create something out of nothing. Um, there's a lot of mimicry going on, but also there's a lot of competition culturally. So in a way, I think that the, the constraints and the, the poor resources has led to people being very, very creative. But this is element of uh, showmanship, of um, performing beyond you, the limits of, that are expected of you. And, and that's been the case for hundreds of years. And, it, and it's borne out, I think, especially in the music. It's interesting. You, um, you observe at one point um, near the beginning of your piece how respect tops the list as the most important word in the Jamaican lexicon. It seems like a particularly rich and resonant one that kind of ties in with this idea of of styling yourself in such a way as to elevate yourself and set yourself apart. Yes, absolutely. And this notion of, of uh, respect has been there right from the end of slavery. I mean, if you imagine over hundreds of years, there was the disrespect of slavery. The first thing that came out of emancipation was this idea that now people should be respected. And uh, in the immediate aftermath of, of slavery coming to an end, Everybody started calling themselves Mr. and Mrs. And you see that if you go to Jamaica, as I do regularly, and you get into a cab and you might get into a friendly conversation with someone, you might say to them, well, what's your name? And they'll say, my name is Mr. Thompson. They won't, they won't say my name is Colin or Bob or John. They have this really? notion of respect embedded in them. It's right from the word go. And, and that's true also um, of the idea that you respect your children. So when I go, I've been going since I was a teenager, and whenever I went to Jamaica, I was always called Mr. Colin. Um, but yeah, so this notion of respect is, is, uh, is very, very important. And I think it's quite, actually quite enlivening for people. It gives them some sense of their importance and worth beyond the, the, that, it, that which is expected of them. What, what, what do people say to you, Colin, when you go back and you say you, you, you're born in England, you talk about England? What's the view of of Britain when you when you go to Jamaica? I mean, you obviously can't speak for an entire nation, but the sort of conversations you have, did they, because, you know, in this country, we, we should be more conscious of Windrush than the second Windrush scandal, the problems that, that our country has caused. Is there, what, what's the view of Britain uh, over there now? Well, it changes according to the generation of people that you speak to. Certainly the older generation of my parents' generation who are in the, 80s and 90s now, they still see the world through the prism of Britain. So to give you some examples, uh, my mother and father who were born in Jamaica, when they were growing up in the 1940s in Jamaica, whenever there was a film played at the Rialto Cinema in Kingston, the capital, people would stand up to sing the British national anthem. And the, the same was true when the film came to an end. People would stand up to sing the British national anthem you will talk to people who have left and gone back to Jamaica and they'll say that when they first came to England and they went to the cinema in the 50s or 60s and stood up at the end of the National Anthem, they were alone doing so and they were confounded by that. They were bemused by that. 
Um, so there's a sense that actually Britain has been rather an idea that you want to attach yourself to. So many of the people of my parents' generation, generation were brought up with the romantic poets um, wedded to their souls. I mean, my mother can recite Gunga Ding to the, to the cows come home. And she knows all about uh, Wordsworth and Shelley. They, she, they can recite these poets verbatim. But subsequent generations feel less inclined towards celebrating the connection with Britain. I think there, is, there has been over the years this notion that there ought to have been some reparations made towards Jamaicans for the plunder of Jamaica by the British. Certainly there's a kind of seething uh, hatred, I would say, on some part, on the part of some people towards Britain for the wrong that's never really been addressed. In the piece, I talk about the fact that at the end of uh, the enslaved period um, in the 1830s, the slave owners were rewarded to the tune of 20 yes. pounds, but the enslaved were not. They were not um, in any way rewarded for the fact that they had brought this great wealth to this country. So that great disparity is something that, uh, that's, that sticks in the craw of people. And you can hear it actually, even in the lyrics of the songs that um, I quote in the piece are not that atypical. When Bob Marley, Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler talk about um, in their song, Catch a Fire, slave driver, the table is turned, catch a fire, you're gonna get burned. That's the tale of revenge. And I think you hear that kind of notion that the yearning for revenge, for the yearning for some redress to the great wrong of slavery is still there. And I feel that when I go to Jamaica now, but also as you alluded to, uh, earlier, Stig, people are really uh, insulted by the disrespect shown to their elders who came to this country as British citizens and then were wrongly classified as illegal immigrants and booted out. So when you boot out those people, you're also showing, you're showing disrespect to the Jamaicans back home. So they, they feel the shame of that transgression very deeply. You know, we got a piece next to yours, I think, in the paper, which is talking, um, it's talking about America, but it's, it's reviewing a book about what lessons can be learned from Germany. And the argument is advanced that the way Germany has responded to its genocidal past its notion of, of the reparations it needs to make, it's the public apologies and the public regret and, and the need to recognize the ills of the past in Germany, if you contrast that with, say, America, currently aflame as, as we know, but also Britain, it makes the same point. You, there are, the book's called Lessons to Learn from Germany, that Germany has, in some respects, managed to face up to its abysmal past in a way that, say, America, and really, therefore, Britain, has not. No, I think that's very true. Uh, I, I'm born here. I'm born here, as they say. And by the way, the people in Jamaica feel sorry for me when I say I'm from Britain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was born here. And um, when I was uh, a young boy growing up in Luton, not very far from London, in the 60s and 70s, the idea that I was given as a child at school about slavery was that, thank God for the British who brought about the end of slavery. Yeah. Thank God for William Wilberforce. So it was couched as a triumph. It was not couched as a period of disaster, as a period of, of great transgression on the part of the British. So there is this notion, actually, that, uh, that uh, the, the British, had, they did a great number on people like me, but also on, on my parents' generation, because even they didn't really focus on the negativity of slavery. And they 
in a way, wanted to distance themselves from that notion. And by, by cleaving to Britain, to an idea of the people who were successful in this period, they, they neglected, or rather they turned their back towards uh, Africa. So it's only, you know, I think, in the last 50 years that people have begun to think of themselves in a more Afrocentric way in Jamaica and turned against Britain. I mean, when, when, I, when my parents were growing up, it was very much the tradition of Anglophilia, and they yeah. called themselves Afro-Saxons. It's also, unfortunately, um, wedded to this notion of it being a very sad thing to be black. Uh, it was the tradition, there's a man called uh, Vivian Durham, a very fine journalist who in the 50s said it was the tradition of every black person in Jamaica to be white. Um, and that just speaks to the kind of propaganda that the British invoked in order to um, introduce this negativity about the color of the majority of the population. This majority population felt very poorly about themselves and wanted no more than to be like their white overseers or white colonial masters. And the, the degradation that that does to a whole culture. I mean, you mentioned how your mum can still recite uh, Wordsworth word, word by word. It reminds me of that Lucy by Jamaica Kincaid, where there's that scene where Lucy is in school and she starts reciting, I wandered lonely as a cloud. And, and the, having to uphold someone else's culture, obviously then the whole of Jamaican culture that was that was being made, you know, day by day was completely suppressed. Yes, I think so. Um, what it means that is there's a lot of suspicion. Um, my colour is brown. But when I go to Jamaica, because of the way that I sound and because I drive a higher car, it is assumed in some regard that I am part of the oppressor. I'm part of the people who have been victorious when it comes to uh, plundering the country. And, and so there's this tension also, if, even uh, in the island between the haves and the haves-nots, and, um, and that's still not been resolved. And that's still, I think, as uh, Orlando Patterson points out, one of the terrible legacies of the Atlantic slave trade and of the British colonial rule. Can we see then that, that, that reality, that feeling in, in sport as well? Because when I was growing up, and I presume when you were growing up, Colin, the idea of cricket, a sort of British game, was, was seen at the centre of, uh, of the Caribbean. It was a great sport, the West Indies was great at, at cricket. Um, is it now the case that the, the the cultural pull isn't British? It's not a let's play a game of the British. America seems to me when you when you read about the sporting prowess of people in the Caribbean, they might be inclined towards basketball, they might be inclined towards American football or or sprinting or athletics, things that where America has the centre of gravity rather than than Britain. Yeah, I think that's very true, Stig. Um, the as you know, this great tradition of athleticism in Jamaica and many young athletes who have any kind of prospect or show any promise are courted and tempted to go to America to take up scholarships there. The great heyday of uh, West Indian cricket has slightly passed, I think, although there's still a great thirst and love of cricket um, as the great levelling field. The great thing about sport, isn't it, that, that you are judged purely on your merit. You know, you, you win or you lose. There's no way that the, that the sport is rigged. So in a way, people can excel and not feel that they're going to be somehow challenged in, the, in, in their success. But if you go to Jamaica now, you'll find very few basketball courts. It's mostly, I'd say, American football is going to be the, the thing that takes off increasingly. 
and the continued interest and, and love of sprint events in uh, athletics. And one of the things that intrigued me, and I never knew about Stig, was the, the degree to which the excellence in athletics um, has been going on for over 100 years. Yeah, you said that. Yeah, and you, one of the things that Orlando Patterson does is, is skewer this notion of there being some sort of pseudoscience behind why black Jamaicans are more athletic and do, do better at sport than their white compatriots or white competitors. But in the book, he, uh, Orlando Patterson uh, refers back to a man called Alfred Downer, who was born in 1873. He excelled in Victorian England as one of the, the finest sprinters ever. Yet Alfred Downer, who was from Jamaica, but his parents were white. So they were either overseers or plantation owners themselves. What you get from that is a sense that the tradition yields success. I mean, he also goes on to point about the fact that one of the most prominent politicians in Jamaica in the 40s and 50s was a man called Norma Manley, uh, who was a Rhodes Scholar. But also, Norma Manley was this fantastic athlete who um, excelled when it came to university. He was a great sprinter as well. And Alain de Patterson makes a funny joke that imagine the impact of athletics, athletics in America had George Washington been <laughs> a sprint champion. So, yeah, the, the, there's a long tradition of sprinters, but it, it comes out of the, the fact that there's been this great interest in athletics and a great investment, both emotionally and financially, in the sport for over 100 years. And interesting, too, in terms of how um, it's, an, it's a fine example of how these myths that we tell ourselves about you know, Jamaica this, Jamaica that, and we do it for other countries as well, but how these myths can become utterly, utterly detached from the reality, but they feed the narrative that we have that we want to, that we want to keep feeding. Yeah, and it's difficult, isn't it, to divest yourself of those things that you've told yourself again and again and again. And that's one of the great things I think about Jamaica is that um, although there is this great anger and a great feeling that there's been this wrong in the past, there's also this great capacity to forgive. So, I mean, Jamaica does have this terrible reputation for violence, but the violence is perpetrated by a small number of people. The overwhelming feeling that you get from Jamaica, even in the midst of this terrible agony of its past, is one of love. I mean, one love is the other phrase that you'll hear again and again over yeah. and over in Jamaica. And it's partly due, I think, to this notion of non-alignment that um, arose during the heyday of the Rastafarian movement and the um, excellence of, of reggae, which kind of went hand in glove with uh, Rastafari. And so the idea of Rastafari, that uh, God resides within you, I and I, there's a I and I, is a kind of peace-loving uh, culture, peace-loving cult, peace-loving religion that actually has, through many, many decades, begun to inform the mainstream. It, it wasn't always the case. I mean, Rastafari was a, a, a vilified religion, and Rastafarians were outcasts in the 50s and 60s. No one wanted to be associated with. But with the ascendancy of Bob Marley and, and Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler and Burning Spear and people like that, the fact that they became financially and culturally successful. Rastafari also was benefited from that new way of thinking about these poor barefoot people who formerly had nothing to offer society. And somehow that kind of humility, that kind of sense that they're not too far removed from, from the humble origins has somehow percolated throughout the country. So as well as there being this, this 
seething feeling for vengeance and for some sort of reparation. There is this amazing um, outpouring of love and affection whenever you travel in Jamaica. Well, that's probably a, a, a point to, to, to leave it on, um, uh, Colin, both the negative reality and also the positive one as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now, we all probably have E.M. Forster in the canon, but where exactly? He never, it seems to me, is quite dominant, hovering stubbornly somewhere between major and minor. Robert Douglas Fairhurst this week reminds us that Strachey's nickname for him was Mole, which poked fun at his friend's short-sighted and whiskery appearance, but also acknowledged Forster's skill at vanishing into a network of hidden tunnels. He has never disappeared completely, and Douglas Fairhurst argues that in our new lockdown world, Forster's writing has started to resonate in even stronger, stranger ways. That's true of the writing. It's also true of the film adaptations made in the 1980s and 90s. Elizabeth Lowry, on the other hand, has returned to the novel A Passage to India, which itself seems to resonate with the present day. Forster's tale of the failing Raj is set into relief by our own signs of a diminished world. And to Lowry, there is little consolation in Forster's text. At life's core, where meaning should be, she says, there's a blank. Forster's final and long gestating novel is both the apex of his fiction and his dismissal of fiction itself. According to Lowry, the fact that there was nothing left to say and that not writing was the only truthful way of saying it. So what to make of Forster now? Has his time really come again and did it really ever go away? Michael Keynes is here to consider those questions and more. Michael, hello. Hello, Steve. Um, right. I realise this may be an unprofitable question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, Michael. Is he a major figure? If you were to, to, to look at the, the century's major novelists, is, is Forster there? Is he a Hardy-esque figure or is he, or is he sort of the, the league below? Well, I, that's, it's a good question. I think it's quite fair to ask because we're halfway there to that strange figure, that round figure of 100 years after an author's death is he still being read is she still being studied are the works being published and in the case of Forster to me he's a major figure but I'm aware that not everyone holds that opinion he's not an Oxford world's classic for example but he is a penguin oh. world uh, classic oh. it's very strange that isn't it I thought mm. I'm sure I've seen it but I don't think he is he did contribute 
to the world's classics when it was being created in the early days, as did, as did Wolf, and they were working quite closely in association at the time. But I don't think he's been published as a world's classic, so I find that quite, quite strange. Anyway, that's just one sort of, sort of symptom, if you like, of being a major figure. And you mentioned the idea that maybe he's sort of somewhere between um, major and minor. And I wonder if, the, if the, the very popular films based on his work somehow contribute to that. Like maybe they're very popular and their heritage sort of films in the cliche way. And maybe that, that creates a bit of um, snobbery about his work, as does the sense that they're about uh, ladies hanging around in Florence, which, of course, if people um, read them closely, they realise really isn't the whole truth about them. And nothing wrong, nothing wrong with that at all. You can make the same case about Henry James has lots of people faffing around Florence and Venice and, and places. And it, it's it's, it's, no, well, it's fact, no cause for disgrace. Wasn't there, in fact, some beef between E.M. Forster and Henry James? Didn't, didn't Forster think that Henry James had sort of ripped off where angels fear to tread in The Ambassadors? Really? I'm sure, I'm sure yeah, I, I'll have to look into that. But it's a similar plot line, isn't it? Because it is, it is. It, there's, right. you know, young Lilia, the, the English widow who kind of runs off to Italy and, and falls in love and then her relatives are sort of trying to claw her back from beautiful, free Tuscany to stale old England. So, so I didn't know that. I picture that as being something like Colin Firth and Hugh Grant having a... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thing is, I'm I'm all Team James in this era. I, I regret to say, Michael, I'm you know the Ambassadors is my I think possibly my second favourite Henry James Henry James novel. I think it's 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 when and Henry James is a major figure, isn't he? In a, in a way that Forster. You're made... trying to turn this into a podcast about Henry James. Yeah, I can oh, see shut it. Up. <laughs> but that um, is a good question, isn't it? I suppose in that if Forster is somebody who's seen as being a bit too light. But in some ways, he has common ground with James. What what is the difference? Does it lie in the in the prose or in the way he doesn't maybe raise weighty concerns in in the same way? And get forced to that, and forced that we end up with uh, when the novel Morris comes out, which is after his death, and he's sort of seen to to confront issues around homosexuality in a way that possibly Henry James could have done but didn't. There's even a, a point of similarity or difference there, perhaps. It's very strange with, with Morris, isn't it? And the story collection, I think, gets overlooked that came out around the same time. You know, also posthumously, the, this collection came out the year after Morris called The Life to Come. And it clearly shows that Forster had been writing, you know, stories, been drawing on his own life and been imagining things that he knew he would never see published. Um, so it's interesting maybe to put that alongside James, who is more... Um, obviously infinitely more prolific and knew exactly what he was doing when it came to getting book, publishable books out. Well, that's true. Let's look at the career then, because it's perhaps surprising to me that Forster only published five novels in his lifetime. In your view, is it easy to say it's a kind of career building up to a passage to India, which, as Elizabeth Lauer explains, took him years and years to write it. The First World War intervened, but it did take him a a long time is it a, the sense of the sort of the career building up to that moment there's a strange sense to my mind in which it's not really a literary career um at all i mean he's he's a man of means he doesn't need to work and he doesn't quite know what to do when he leaves cambridge somehow failed to receive a first and so he he couldn't stay but he did go on and tutor and lecture and he wrote non-fiction as well as fiction and then those early novels those sort of pre-first world war novels um, he's working on them, I think, it's, you know, he's, he's picking up room with a view, putting it down and then working on The Longest Journey, you know, and so you can feel that a, a, there are a lot of similarities between them because they're all emerging from this, this same kind of, I don't know, this mind that is doing this and then 
going off on on travels to Italy with his mother and then coming home and you know sort of the, the, the same kind of atmosphere that hangs around them and then as Elizabeth Lowry says as, as you point out it takes a long time to produce a passage to India and it takes a lot of, of help to produce passage to India so maybe you could say it's not a sort of building up to it it's there's a kind of weariness he says himself I mean she quotes this great line doesn't she that he sort he's sort of weary about about the conventionalities of novel writing it's all a bit it's all a bit old hat to him at that point but he does need help from people to sort of get across the line and he writes seven chapters I think of a passage to India in 1913 just after he left so he went to India in 1912 with friends he left in the spring he wrote a bit and of course, he put it down again. The war happens. He becomes, uh, he works for the Red Cross during the war. Um, he has uh, new sexual experiences abroad and he needs lots of help from Leonard and Virginia Woolf, among others, to help him finish the novel. So it, it's a very strange shape, that, that part of his life. And then, of course, he lives for a long time afterwards and dies in 1970. He broadcasts. He ends up being treated as if he is a classic. You know, he gets to write forwards to his earlier books, looking back on them. But it's kind of it's kind of extraordinary that he never wrote a novel after that. Yeah, it feels. I mean, I I don't know how you feel about the um, Elizabeth Lowry's argument, but she mentioned something that I think comes up um, a lot in Forster criticism. I mean, that's my my just sense from obviously the kind of outside of that is that there is a nothingness at the heart of the novel, and maybe yeah. he has he has said something that needs to be said about the the moral realism that he writes and about the limits of fiction as he can write it, not necessarily for the novel in a big sense, but for him personally. It seems to tie in almost with what um, a point that Robert Douglas Fairhurst makes about how all Forster's most sympathetic characters want a view; they want to look out of a metaphorical window on a, 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 you know, have a larger understanding of life, an alternative future, and elsewhere, he says, where things happen otherwise. And it's almost like by the time he 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 finishes or is writing a passage to India, more and more of those narratives of. Uh, you know, empire, specifically the Raj, might have once seemed to represent all that possibility, you know, that there was this other place where people could, you know, prosper and be free and all of those things. And that was all kind of crumbling. And you do get a sense of like all of these narratives, these grand narratives in, in the case of empire and all of that, just crumbling and fading and being exhausted. And so it seems almost natural that fiction, fiction would fail for him. Well, on the other hand, I think that there is a view, but there's got to be a room. And he's a writer who draws on these, um, these tensions that something can be, as, as you're saying, stifling and outdated mm. and, you know, and oppressive for everyone. Um, ideas of empire, or ideas of, um, you know, a man or a woman's place in society um, or, or class, the class system. You know, he sees all of that as, as bad. And he wants to reject it. And, and I think he, he writes some various points about, you know, rejecting um, ideas of nationality you know these rigid boundaries that to some people still absolutely defining um and he wants to get rid of that and the view is the thing that matters but somehow people still need rooms so the tension <laughs> in the novel maybe depends on having on having both i'm interested in both of your answers to this which is if you had to recommend a non to a non-forster reader a book to read of his would you say go to a passage to india what's your favorite i, I think room with a view has still got this kind of uh seductive holiday atmosphere that it also undercuts so you get a sense of both that he can describe you you know be a great pure travel writer he can describe and relish uh the life of this place as seen by you know through a tourist's eye 
but he can also cut against that and show how that in itself is this strange can be this strange oppressive project so i think that's quite a quite a good one would anyone say something well i was i would i would i would say that one as well but having read elizabeth lowry's piece it it suggests that you know rereading passage is is actually very well worth doing because the the lines that she pulls out make it seem like something that you should you're really only going to get the maximum out almost or not get the maximum out of but that there is much more to be got out of it if you read it in conjunction with his critical writing which is what I started with I I read um aspects of the novel and when you read those two texts in tandem a passage and aspects you see kind of this kind of this the togetherness of of his vision uh, in musical terms, she says, a passage to India is a John Cage composition. It yeah. makes not just a narrative feature, but a structural and ontological keynote of the silence at the heart of existence, which the novel usually tries to disguise. And then you remember, of course, that Forster conceived of the novel as a symphony. And that is what he, he wrote about in Aspects, where he spoke about rhythm and uh, and structure and, and character and plot and all of those sorts of things coming into a whole I also think it's interesting to re- to have a novelist whose output is so small you can read all of them. Relative, I'm always attracted. Michael, we've spoken about this before, but one of the the many attractive things about Jane Austen is you can read six novels and putting aside the sort of marginalia and the unfinished stuff, you can read the whole of Jane Austen relatively easily. And there's something very satisfying about that, don't you think? That if it's four or five or six novels. It's not going to kill you to read them, and and getting across that the trajectory of someone's novel career is is I think it's quite a thrilling thing to do. I think in Forster's case, they come in they come in uh, they're they're in conversation uh, partly because of as I said the the time at which they're composed, the world to, to which they refer, and Passage to India is a kind of outlier, although it still of course includes these these elements of what it's like to be say. A British tourist um, abroad in the world, but they are also bound together by this theme, maybe of a self-realization, and then that includes something that I think Elizabeth Lowry quotes about most of life being about being able to look clearly at the fact that we exaggerate a lot about our lives. That we say, yeah. um, we might say, what is it? I'm uh, I'm having most fantastic time, or this is the most thrilling day ever. And, and Forster says, well, actually, you know, you might be having the most thrilling day ever, but it's going to, there are going to be moments of boredom, moments of uncertainty, moments of yeah. doubt, fear, pain, whatever they are. But most of the time, <laughs> existence just continues. I mean, this is quite a horrible, deflating realisation. And we're being insincere when we, we kind of um, hype it up. That's just one way in which the novel is doing something you know, remarkable that is going on throughout his books. And so that, that maybe again cuts against the idea of there being a progress from Where Angels Fear to Tread and The Longest Journey, the first ones to be published to India. I think it's all there and it's kind of waiting to be, to be sort of driven out, squeezed out. Well, well I'm going to go, I mean, I, I, I might read, are we all going to go and read A Passage to India? Reread it? Is that, is that what's the lesson of all of I it? I don't think so. I think Elizabeth Lowry's done it for me. <laughs> All right. Um, she sold it to me. I, I'm going to reread it, I think, after this. I thought it's a great, great piece. And I hope people... It is a great piece. Yeah, lovely. Well, listen, uh, I'm going to go and do the same. Michael, as ever, a joy to speak to you. My pleasure.
I do hope readers of the paper have been enjoying our cultural dispatches from around the world in lockdown, from Germany to Western Australia, New York to Goa. This week, we hear from the poet Alicia Stallings, who has written a beautiful essay about her nightly visits to one of her favourite Athenian haunts, the Proto-Necrotaphio, the first cemetery of Athens. It is a place not only of death, she says the dead have their six feet of social distancing down cold, but also of life being both sculpture park and urban forest too, a home of swaggering cats and young boys stir crazy from quarantine who like to take their skateboards for a spin on the broad marble courtyard. Tell us about this fascinating place and life at the moment in Greece. Alicia joins Thea and me now. Alicia, hello. Hello. I think Greece has been kind of lucky in the sense that uh, it went on an early lockdown and seems to have squashed the curve of the virus. So it's kind of opening up a little now. How does that feel? Because where we are in, in, in Britain, Greece is heralded as a country that, that's handled this well. Living there, do you, did you feel that the government was handling it well? It was being, it was being tackled responsibly? Yes, I think that um, they gave very clear instructions. They had an epidemiologist in charge of making a lot of these decisions and um, who would give weekly briefings to the public. And I think there was a kind of public spiritedness coming out of austerity. There was this idea that people had to have each other's backs, I guess. Nobody wants to end up in, in hospital here. Um, because those hospitals are also, they were suffered under austerity. And we're very close to Italy culturally and um, maybe geographically. And I think people saw what was happening there and everyone took it very seriously. And Greece, in Greek, um, almost every wish that you do, whether it's um, saying hello or goodbye or cheers, all of that involves the word for health. I think that's one of the, the main virtues is, is health. So I think everyone took it quite seriously and they did a good job. It's been something of a, of a test as well, though, hasn't it? I mean, it's a relatively new administration. They'd been elected only last July, I think. So, I mean, not much more than six months in power before it had to start making these major decisions. Yes. And um, I think, you know, even people on other sides of the political spectrum, they may not agree with some of the things they've done about refugees and migration, but I think everyone kind of agrees that they did a good job with the virus. So, so we're happy for that. We're now kind of in this strange period between having flattened the curve, um, but there are no tourists here yet. So um, the Acropolis is empty. I think um, Athenians are kind of enjoying having the city to themselves for a little bit before whatever will happen when tourists re-enter on June 15th. Interesting, because in, in Rome, they've, they've just reopened the Colosseum. Yes, we've all, we only recently did the archaeological sites reopen, um, and the museums are still closed, but I think mm. they also open shortly. So we're kind of hoping to visit a lot of these things um, while it still feels relatively safe and while we have um, very few people at them. I mean, it's been wonderful. We took the family up to the Acropolis. There was nobody there, which is unheard of on a beautiful late May morning. And does that still excite you, Elisa, despite living there, despite being being an adopted uh, daughter of the country in, in, in a sense? Is it still thrilling to sort of walk walk around those sites? Oh, yes. I mean, I think everyone in Athens sort of feels if you turn a corner and get a view of the Acropolis, that's that always gives you a little a little thrill. So we enjoy that. In fact, one of the strange things, um, secrets of the, the cemetery, there's a place where you can climb up and get a beautiful 
view of the Acropolis. Well, tell us about this cemetery, because it sounds like a um, fantastic place. The first cemetery of Athens. Why did you pick there as a place to go? Well, it was open. (laughs) (laughs) Good start. The archaeological sites were shut, but um, the first cemetery is also a working cemetery. So even though it has all of these storied figures who are buried there from politicians to movie stars, poets to painters, sculptors, assassins. I mean, it has all, just all of modern Greek history is, is in the soil there. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's a, it's a working cemetery, so it's open. You say, there's a great line in, in your piece, you could, one could write a history of modern Greece through the funerals of poets. And you talk about several of those. What do you mean by that? What, 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 what parts of modern Greek history do you think are encapsulated? This is a little bit further afield from the first cemetery in Athens, but I would start with the funeral of, of Byron, or the, yeah. the death of Byron, right at the very beginning of the Greek state, at the very dawn, um, which was an en- enormously important event, so much so that Easter was postponed that year, as Easter was kind of postponed this year when um, the Nazis had, were occupying Athens, um, Palamas, very important um, national poet of Greece, died and at his funeral, Sikeliados, another important poet, gave a very rousing speech and read a poem and there were 100,000 people present um, at that funeral and it became a protest against the occupation. Um, so likewise, when George Seferis died, Um, It was still during the junta, and when people went to that funeral, it also became a protest against the junta. So there's a sense that um, the funerals of poets often has a a political element. And you talk about the funeral of of Kiki Dimula, which happened before lockdown as a kind of marker point of how a sort of the before coronavirus period, it sort of was an end of an era. It was a kind of strange thing. There were several deaths of important literary figures um, at the beginning of 2020, and those funerals were state funerals often very well attended. I think there were a few hundred people um, at Kiki Dimula's funeral, including, I think, I believe the president of Greece, um, many politicians, many figures, and everyone, just that memory of everyone kissing each other on the cheek and making jokes about, we'll see you at the next funeral. And within days, that just became almost unimaginable that anyone would greet people by kissing them on the cheek. You mentioned the um, resistance hero, uh, Manolis Glezos, the man who, in, as a youth in 1941, he scaled the Acropolis and tore down the Nazi flag. He died at the end of March too. And by that point, everything had changed. So he had only a very, very modest funeral, a few people. It sort of makes me wonder about what's happening, you know, what will happen to all this grief for the dead that we usually get a chance to air at the funerals of relatives or, in this case, important figures. You know, so many people aren't getting to exercise these really important customs. I've been by his, I found his grave, actually sort of stumbled upon it by accident. There's no marker there yet. And I only knew it was his grave because there was a Greek flag there and there was a poem uh, taped to a tree in his honor and a few flowers scattered on the bare earth. Uh, I think eventually there will be, the state will install some sort of um, marble monument. But one of the things I do like about the, the Greek way of death is there's a kind of natural rhythm to the morning. So 
there is the funeral itself, but then there's, a, I believe, a nine-day memorial. There's a very important 40-day memorial. There's a very important one-year memorial. There's a very important three-year memorial. So I think that what will happen probably with Glezos, assuming the, the virus kind of stays under control, is that we will see something more populated um, at one of these um, marker events. You mentioned the, the, a poem taped to a, to a tree. Um, how much consolation have you found over the last, I suppose, what is it, eight to ten weeks? Have you found consolation in reading poetry, um, thinking where you are in, in classical poetry? Do you, do you find that poems from a long time ago speak to you at, at the moment particularly? Well, I, I think they always do. That's kind of their special trick, is they always seem to find a way to speak to the moment, to speak to the future. Um, I, I translated um, Lucretius's De Rerum Natura, which has a long segment on the plague in Athens. It's basically a versification of Thucydides. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot. And the cemetery itself is just full of poetry. Um, people have poems inscribed on their tombs, um, and so it's not only poets, but, you know, people might have a poem by Cavafy. Um, they might have some verses from the Iliad. They might have some verses from more contemporary poetry. So I think it, it poetry does, I think one of the things it does is it says, you know, life was ever thus. This, you aren't the first person to go through disease or plague or lockdown or quarantine or any of these things, solitude. Um, so I find, uh, I do find a lot of comfort. It, it does not feel lonesome in the cemetery. It's so full of, of interesting people. You'll turn a corner and suddenly realize, oh, so-and-so is buried here as well. And, um, but it's also almost a nature preserve. It's full of mm. birds. There are mulberry trees that the magpies are enjoying right now. Um, there are cats everywhere. They're not exactly wildlife, but they're feral. Um, and there's this wonderful feeling of nature going on about its business and time going on about its business. And I, I find that a consolation. I do. That really, that really resonates with me. I've always really liked, um, it's difficult to pull this line off without sounding odd, but, um, I've always really liked cemeteries. I've never found them to be, um, morbid, morbid places, there, there is, especially in the bigger, wilder ones that are overgrown, there is always so much life. But even if even if they're the tidy kind of filing cabinet style ones that you get a lot of in uh, in Italy, for example, there's always a sense of so much life lived and and it does make for good company. I actually think one of the things you can do in, in Britain generally as well is, I do this all the time with my children, if you go anywhere, you find a church, mm. you find a graveyard, you will find, you know, something going back two or three or 400 years, you find engravings that, are, that, 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 that sort of tell a story or a yeah. life cut short or a life that was tremendously elongated. And, and finding stories in, in people, that it, it, it is oddly in, invigorating. Did you feel that, Alicia, even you know, surrounded by this sort of mortal peril, you, you sort of, you, the fact that you could go to a, a cemetery and find life feels almost oddly appropriate? Yes, and it is, there's, it was a beautiful springtime. So, you know, the, the blackbirds are singing. There's a wonderful fragrance um, of the bitter orange trees. Um, it, I, I, I think my family was sort of amused because I would always return from this, you know, kind of cheered up um, <laughs> to, go to the cemetery. But there's also, there's a, 
there's a life even um, beyond that. There's um, the first cemetery is surrounded by marble workshops. So there are living artists who are making monuments. There's just a kind of a busyness about it. Um, at the same time, I felt like I, I wasn't close to crowds. Um, I would be, you know, often almost the only person besides a few um, grave diggers walking around. Grave diggers and, skateboard- and skateboarders. <laughs> skateboarders, yes. It's an interesting societal overlap. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, Alicia, before you go, uh, when we talk to, to writers um, on this, we, people are still pretty much still staying a lot at home. So uh, is there a book or a poem or a, a film that you've you've watched or read or experienced during lockdown that you'd recommend because people may be coming to the end of their bookshelves and thinking of something is there anything that you've you've read over the last few weeks that we, you'd particularly resonate and you'd particularly recommend well i've been um very interested in a, a reissued poetry debut from 1962 by rosamund stanhope um I, I think it's called as i look down from camelot i may have that title not right but i've kind of enjoyed rediscovering these ornate and beautiful poems. Uh, that's been something I've enjoyed. And um, again, kind of connected a little bit to the cemetery. Um, we finally managed to find um, the grave of T.H. White, um, author of Once and Future King in the Protestant section. I'd been looking for it for years, but um, we finally sort of hit upon it. And I've been rereading The Goshawk. Um, oh, yeah. It is very kind of harrowing um, description of manning this wild animal and it, I think it doesn't end up going very well but it's also about solitude because he's kind of quarantined himself um, so it's strangely about confronting solitude and nature and all of these things and um, I've been thinking about it um, I think partly because of finding his grave and then reading it and sort of feeling that I'm in, in conversation with that. I think that's a great recommendation. Uh, uh, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us now. Thank you so much. I am enjoying the recommendation. We get, we get really uh, a wide range of recommendations, I think, here. When, when we, it's, it's always worth asking the question. What was it? Sam Leith was t- talking about a Netflix, uh, a Netflix comic thing. Um, yeah. and, then we, and then we have The Goshawk. It's a nice... I think yeah, which a- sort of takes us back to um, Richard Smith recommended a bird book as well i can't remember we'll have to go back a few episodes to find it but that, that was there's some, a, there's some dovetailing going on dovetailing indeed that's all we have time for this week our thanks go to michael keynes colin grant and alicia stallings make sure you're subscribing to the tls this week we have everything from the father of american anthropology to a prose poem by a portuguese writer to the love affair between iris murdoch and bridget brophy Next week, there's all sorts of things we could talk about, from May Gray to Napoleon to the art to see on the internet in lockdown. We'll see what we pick. Until then, from Thea and me, goodbye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.